Chapter Five of the Portrait of a Lady, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Don Murphy. The Portrait of a Lady, Volume One, by Henry James. Chapter Five. Ralph Touchett was a philosopher, but nevertheless he knocked at his mother's door, at a quarter to seven, with a good deal of eagerness. Even philosophers have their preferences, and it must be admitted that of his progenitors his father ministered most to his sense of the sweetness of filial dependence. His father, as he had often said to himself, was the more motherly his mother on the other hand was paternal and even according to the slang of the day gubernatorial she was nevertheless very fond of her only child and had always insisted on his spending three months of the year with her ralph rendered perfect justice to her affection and knew that in her thoughts and her thoroughly arranged and servanted life his turn always came after the other nearest subjects of her selectitude the various punctualities of performance of the workers of her will. He found her completely dressed for dinner, but she embraced her boy with her gloved hands and made him sit on the sofa beside her. She inquired scrupulously about her husband's health and about the young man's own, and receiving no very brilliant account of either, remarked that she was more than ever convinced of her wisdom in not exposing herself to the English climate. In this case, she also might have given way. Ralph smiled at the idea of his mother's giving way, but made no point of reminding her that his own infirmity was not the result of the English climate, from which he absented himself for a considerable part of each year. He had been a very small boy when his father, Daniel Tracy Touchett, a native of Rutland, in the state of Vermont, came to England as a subordinate partner in a banking-house, where some ten years later he gained preponderant control. Daniel Touchett saw before him a lifelong residence in his adopted country, of which from the first he took a simple, sane, and accommodating view but as he said to himself he had no intention of disamericanizing nor had he a desire to teach his only son any such subtle art it had been for himself so very soluble a problem to live in england assimilated but unconverted that it seemed to him equally simple his lawful heir should after his death carry on the grey old bank in the white american light he was at pains to intensify this light, however, by sending the boy home for his education. Ralph spent several terms at an American school, and took a degree at an American university, after which, as he struck his father on his return as even redundantly native, he was placed for some three years in residence at Oxford. Oxford swallowed up Harvard, and Ralph became at last English enough. His outward conformity to the manners that surrounded him was none the less the mask of a mind that greatly enjoyed its independence, on which nothing long imposed itself, and which naturally inclined to adventure and irony, indulged in a boundless liberty of appreciation. He began with being a young man of promise. At Oxford he distinguished himself. 
to his father's ineffable satisfaction, and the people about him said it was a thousand pities so clever a fellow should be shut out from a career. He might have had a career by returning to his own country, though this point is shrouded in uncertainty, and even if Mr. Touchett had been willing to part with him, which was not the case, it would have been hard with him to put a watery waste permanently between himself and the old man whom he regarded as his best friend. Ralph not only fond of his father, he admired him, he enjoyed the opportunity of observing him. Daniel Touchett, to his perception, was a man of genius, and though he himself had no aptitude for the banking mystery, he made a point of learning enough of it to measure the great figure his father had played. It was not this, however, he mainly relished. It was the fine ivory surface, polished as by the English air, that the old man had opposed to possibilities of penetration. Daniel Touchett, had been neither at Harvard nor at Oxford, and it was his own fault if he had placed in his son's hands the key to modern criticism. Ralph, whose head was full of ideas which his father had never guessed, had a high esteem for the latter's originality. Americans, rightly or wrongly, are commended for the ease with which they adapt themselves to foreign conditions. But Mr. Touchett had made of the very limits of his pliancy half the ground of his general success. He had retained in their freshness most of his marks of primary pressure. His tone, as his son always noted with pleasure, was that of the more exuberant parts of New England. At the end of his life he had become, on his own ground, as mellow as he was rich. He combined consummate shrewdness with the disposition superficially to fraternize, and his social position, on which he had never wasted a care, had the firm perfection of an unthumbed fruit. It was perhaps his want of imagination and of what is called the historic consciousness, but to many of the impressions usually made by English life upon the cultivated stranger his sense was completely closed. There were certain differences he had never perceived, certain habits he had never formed, certain obscurities he had never sounded. As regards these latter, on the day he had sounded them, his son would have thought less well of him. Ralph, on leaving Oxford, had spent a couple of years in travelling, after which he had found himself perched on a high stool in his father's bank. The responsibility and honour of such positions is not, I believe, measured by the height of the stool, which depends upon other considerations. Ralph, indeed, who had very long legs, was fond of standing, and even of walking about at his work. To this exercise, however, he was obliged to devote but a limited period, for at the end of some eighteen months he had become aware of his being seriously out of health. He had caught a violent cold, which fixed itself on his lungs and threw them into dire confusion. He had to give up work and apply to the letter the sorry injunction to take care of himself. At first he slighted the task. It appeared to him it was not himself in the least he was taking care of, but an uninteresting and uninterested person which whom he had nothing in common. This person, however, improved an acquaintance, and Ralph grew at last to have a certain grudging tolerance. 
even an undemonstrative respect for him. Misfortune makes strange bedfellows, and our young man, feeling that he had something at stake in the matter, it usually struck him as his reputation for ordinary wit. Devoted to his graceless charge, an amount of attention of which note was duly taken, and which had at least the effect of keeping the poor fellow alive. One of his lungs began to heal, the other promised to follow its example, and he was assured that he might outweather a dozen winters if he would betake himself to those climates in which consumptives chiefly congregate. As he had grown extremely fond of London, he cursed the flatness of exile, but at the same time that he cursed, he conformed. And gradually, when he found his sensitive organ, grateful even for grim favours, he conferred them with a lighter hand. He wintered abroad, as the phrase is, basked in the sun, stopped at home when the wind blew, went to bed when it rained, and once or twice when it had snowed overnight, almost never got up again. A secret hoard of indifference, like a thick cake a fond old nurse might have slipped into his first school outfit, came to his aid and helped to reconcile him to sacrifice, since at the best he was too ill for aught but that arduous game. As he said to himself, there was really nothing he had wanted very much to do, so that he had at least not renounced the field of valour. At present, however, the fragrance of forbidden fruit seemed occasionally to float past him and remind him that the finest of pleasures is the rush of action. Living as he now lived was like reading a good book in a poor translation, a meagre entertainment for a young man who felt that he might have been an excellent linguist. He had good winters and poor winters, and while the former lasted, he was sometimes the sport of a vision of virtual recovery. But this vision was dispelled some three years before the occurrence of the incidents with which this history opens. He had on that occasion remained later than usual in England, and had been overtaken by bad weather before reaching Algiers. He arrived more dead than alive, and lay there for several weeks between life and death. His convalescence was a miracle, but the first use he made of it was to assure himself that such miracles happen but once. He said to himself that his hour was in sight, and that it behoved him to keep his eyes upon it, yet that it was also open to him to spend the interval as agreeably as might be consistent with such a preoccupation. With the prospect of losing them, the simple use of his faculties became an exquisite pleasure. It seemed to him the joys of contemplation had never been sounded. He was far from the time when he had found it hard that he should be obliged to give up the idea of distinguishing himself, an idea none the less importunate for being vague and none the less delightful for having had to struggle in the same breast with bursts of inspiring self-criticism. His friends at present judged him more cheerful, and attributed it to a theory, over which they shook their heads knowingly, that he would recover his health. His serenity was but the array of wild flowers niched in his ruin. It was very probably this sweet-tasting property of the observed thing in itself that was mainly concerned in Ralph's quickly stirred interest in the advent of a young lady who was evidently not insipid. 
if he was consideringly disposed something told him here was occupation enough for a succession of days it may be added in summary fashion that the imagination of loving as distinguished from that of being loved had still a place in his reduced sketch he had only forbidden himself the riot of expression however he shouldn't inspire his cousin with a passion nor would she be able even should she try to help him to one and now tell me about the young lady he said to his mother what do you mean to do with her mrs touchett was prompt i mean to ask your father to invite her to stay three or four weeks at garden court you needn't stand on such ceremony as that said ralph my father will ask her as a matter of course i don't know about that she's my niece she's not his good lord dear mother what a sense of property that's all the more reason for his asking her but after that i mean after three months for it's absurd asking the poor girl to remain but for three or four paltry weeks what do you mean to do with her i mean to take her to paris i mean to get her clothing ah yes that's of course but independently of that i shall invite her to spend the autumn with me in florence you don't rise above detail dear mother said ralph i should like to know what you mean to do with her in a general way my duty mrs touchett declared i suppose you pity her very much she added no i don't think i pity her she doesn't strike me as inviting compassion i think i envy her before being sure however give me a hint of where you see your duty in showing her four european countries i shall leave her the choice of two of them and in giving her the opportunity of perfecting herself in french which she already knows very well ralph frowned a little that sounds rather dry even allowing her the choice of two of the countries if it's dry said his mother with a laugh you can leave isabel alone to water it she is as good as summer rain any day do you mean she's a gifted being i don't know whether she's a gifted being but she's a clever girl with a strong will and a high temper she has no idea of being bored i can imagine that said ralph and then he added abruptly how do you to get on do you mean by that that i'm a bore i don't think she finds me one some girls might i know but isabel's too clever for that i think i greatly amuse her we get on because i understand her i know the sort of girl she is she's very frank and i'm very frank we know just what to expect of each other ah dear mother ralph exclaimed one always knows what to expect of you you've never surprised me but once and that's to-day in presenting me with a pretty cousin whose existence i had never suspected do you think her so pretty very pretty indeed but i don't insist upon it it's her general air of being some one in particular that strikes me who is this rare creature and what is she where did you find her and how did you make her acquaintance i found her in an old house at albany sitting in a dreary room on a rainy day reading a heavy book and boring herself to death she didn't know she was bored but when i left her no doubt of it she seemed very grateful for the service you may say i shouldn't have enlightened her i should have let her alone 
That's a good deal in that, but I acted conscientiously. I thought she was meant for something better. It occurred to me that it would be a kindness to take her about and introduce her to the world. She thinks she knows a great deal of it, like most American girls, but like most American girls she's ridiculously mistaken. If you want to know, I thought she would do me credit. I like to be well thought of, and for a woman of my age there's no greater convenience, in some ways, than an attractive niece. You know I had seen nothing of my sister's children for years. I disapproved entirely of the father. But I always meant to do something for them when he should have gone to his reward. I ascertained where they were to be found, and, without any preliminaries, went and introduced myself. There are two others of them, both of whom are married, but I saw only the elder, who has, by the way, a very uncivil husband. The wife, whose name is Lily, jumped at the idea of taking an interest in Isabel. She said it was just what her sister needed, that someone should take an interest in her. She spoke of her as you might speak of some young person of genius, in want of encouragement and patronage. It may be that Isabel's a genius, but in that case I've not yet learned her special line. Mrs. Ludlow was especially keen about my taking her to Europe. They all regard Europe over there as a land of immigration, of rescue, a refuge for their superfluous population. Isabel herself seemed very glad to come, and the thing was easily arranged. There was a little difficulty about the money question, as she seemed adverse to being under pecuniary obligations. But she has a small income, and she supposes herself to be travelling at her own expense. Ralph listened attentively to this judicious report, by which his interest in the subject of it was not impaired. "'Ah, she's a genius,' he said. "'We must find out her special line. Is it by chance for flirting?' I don't think so. You may suspect that at first, but she'll be wrong. You won't, I think, in any way be easily right about her. Warburton's wrong, then? Ralph rejoicingly exclaimed. He flatters himself he has made that discovery. Lord Warburton won't understand her. He needn't try. He's very intelligent, said Ralph, but it's right he should be puzzled once in a while. "'Isabel will enjoy puzzling a lord,' Mrs. Touchett remarked. Her son frowned a little. "'What does she know about lords?' "'Nothing at all. That will puzzle him all the more.' Ralph greeted these words with a laugh, and looked out of the window. Then, "'Are you going down to see my father?' he asked. "'At a quarter to eight, said Mrs. Touchett. Her son looked at his watch. "'You've another quarter of an hour, then. Tell me some more about Isabel.' After which, as Mrs. Touchett declined his invitation, declaring that he must find out for himself. Well, he pursued, she'll certainly do you credit. But won't she also give you trouble? I hope not, but if she does, I shall not shrink from it. I never do that. She strikes me as very natural, said Ralph. Natural people are not the most trouble. No, said Ralph, you yourself are proof of that. You're extremely natural, and I'm sure you have never troubled anyone. It takes trouble to do that, but tell me this. It just occurs to me, is Isabel capable of making herself disagreeable? Oh, cried his mother, you ask too many questions. 
Find that out for yourself. His questions, however, were not exhausted. All this time, he said, you've not told me what you intend to do with her. Do with her? You talk as if she were a yard of calico. I shall do absolutely nothing with her, and she herself will do everything she chooses. She gave me notice of that. What you meant, then, in your telegram, was that her character's independent. I never know what I mean in my telegrams, especially those I send from America. Clearness is too expensive. Come down to your father. It's not yet a quarter to eight, said Ralph. I must allow for his impatience, Mrs. Touchett answered. Ralph knew what to think of his father's impatience, but making no rejoinder, he offered his mother his arm. This put it in his power, as they descended together, to stop her a moment on the middle landing of the staircase. The broad, low, wide-armed staircase of time-blackened oak, which was one of the most striking features of Garden Court. "'You've no plan of marrying her,' he smiled. "'Marrying her? I should be sorry to play her such a trick. But apart from that, she's perfectly able to marry herself. She has every facility.' "'Do you mean to say she has a husband picked out?' "'I don't know about a husband, but there's a young man in Boston.' Ralph went on. He had no desire to hear about the young man in Boston. "'As my father says, they're always engaged.' His mother had told him that he must satisfy his curiosity at the source, and it soon became evident he should not want for occasion— he had a good deal of talk with his young kinswoman when the two had been left together in the drawing-room lord warburton who had ridden over from his own house some ten miles distant remounted and took his departure before dinner and an hour after this meal was ended mr and mrs touchett who appeared to have quite emptied the measure of their forms withdrew under the valid pretext of fatigue to their respective apartments the young man spent an hour with his cousin. Though she had been travelling half the day, she appeared in no degree spent. She was really tired, she knew it, and knew she should pay for it on the morrow, but it was her habit at this period to carry exhaustion to the furthest point, and confess to it only when dissimulation broke down. A fine hypocrisy was for the present possible. She was interested. She was, as she said to herself, floated. She asked Ralph to show her the pictures. There were a great many in the house, most of them of his own choosing. The best were arranged in an oaken gallery, of charming proportions, which had a sitting-room at either end of it, and which in the evening was usually lighted. The light was insufficient to show the pictures to advantage, and the visit might have stood over to the morrow. This suggestion Ralph had ventured to make, but Isabel looked disappointed, smiling still, however, and said, "'If you please, I should like to see them just a little.' She was eager. She knew she was eager, and now seemed so she couldn't help it. "'She doesn't take suggestions,' Ralph said to himself, but he said it without irritation. Her pressure amused and even pleased him. The lamps were on brackets, at intervals, and if the light was imperfect— it was genial. It fell upon the vague squares of rich colour and on the faded gilding of heavy frames. It made a sheen on the polished floor of the gallery. Ralph took a candlestick and moved about, pointing out the things he liked. 
Isabel, inclining to one picture after another, indulged in little exclamations and murmurs. She was evidently a judge. She had a natural taste. He was struck with that. She took a candlestick herself and held it slowly here and there. She lifted it high, and as she did so, he found himself pausing in the middle of the place and bending his eyes much less upon the pictures than on her presence. He lost nothing, in truth, by these wandering glances, for she was better worth looking at than most works of art. She was undeniably spare, and ponderably light, and provably tall. When people had wished to distinguish her from the other two Miss Archers, they had always called her the willowy one. Her hair, which was dark even to blackness, had been an object of envy to many women. Her light grey eyes, a little too firm, perhaps, in her graver moments, had an enchanting range of concession. They walked slowly up one side of the gallery and down the other, and then she said, "'Well, now, I know more than I did when I began.' "'You apparently have a great passion for knowledge,' her cousin returned." I think I have. Most girls are horridly ignorant. You strike me as different from most girls. Ah, uh, some of them would, but the way they're talked to, murmured Isabel, who preferred not to dilate just yet on herself. Then in a moment, to change the subject, please tell me, isn't there a ghost, she went on? A ghost? A castle spectra. A thing that appears. We call them ghosts in America. "'So we do here when we see them.' "'You do see them, then. "'You ought to, in this romantic old house.' "'It's not a romantic old house,' said Ralph. "'You'll be disappointed if you count on that. "'It's a dismally prosaic one. "'There's no romance here but what you may have brought with you. "'I've brought a great deal, "'but it seems to me I've brought it to the right place.' To keep it out of harm, certainly, nothing will ever happen to it here, between my father and me. Isabel looked at him a moment. Is there never anyone here but your father and you? My mother, of course. Oh, I know your mother. She's not romantic. Haven't you other people? Very few. I'm sorry for that. I like so much to see people. Oh, we'll invite all the country to amuse you, said Ralph. "'Now you're making fun of me,' the girl answered rather gravely. "'Who was the gentleman on the lawn when I arrived?' "'A county neighbor. He doesn't come very often.' "'I'm sorry for that. I liked him,' said Isabel. "'Why, it seemed to me that you barely spoke to him,' Ralph objected. Uh, "'Never mind. I like him all the same. I like your father, too, immensely. "'You can't do better than that. He's the dearest of the dear.' "'I'm so sorry he is ill,' said Isabel. "'You must help me to nurse him. "'You ought to be a good nurse.' "'I don't think I am. "'I've been told I'm not. "'I'm said to have too many theories. "'But you haven't told me about the ghost,' she added. "'Ralph, however, gave no heed to this observation. "'You like my father, and you like Lord Warburton. "'I infer also that you like my mother. "'I like your mother very much.' "'Because—' "'Because—' "'And Isabel found herself attempting to assign a reason for her affection for Mrs. Touchett. "'Ah, uh, we never know why,' said her companion, laughing. 
"'I always know why,' the girl answered. "'It's because she doesn't expect one to like her. "'She doesn't care whether one does or not.' "'So you adore her out of perversity? "'Well, I take greatly after my mother,' said Ralph. "'I don't believe you do at all. "'You wish people to like you, and you try to make them do it. "'Good heavens, how you see through one!' he cried with dismay. "'That was not altogether jocular.' "'But I like you all the same,' his cousin went on. "'The way to clinch the matter will be to show me the ghost.' Ralph shook his head sadly. "'I might show it to you, but you'd never see it. "'The privilege isn't given to everyone. "'It's not enviable. "'It has never been seen by a young, happy, innocent person like you. "'You must have suffered first, have suffered greatly, "'have gained some miserable knowledge. "'In that way your eyes are open to it.' "'I saw it long ago,' said Ralph. "'I told you just now I'm very fond of knowledge,' Isabel answered. "'Yes, of happy knowledge, of pleasant knowledge. "'But you haven't suffered. "'You're not made to suffer. "'I know you'll never see the ghost.' "'She had listened to him attentively, with a smile on her lips, "'but with a certain gravity in her eye. "'Charming as he found her, she struck him as rather presumptuous.' Indeed, it was not a part of her charm, and he wondered what she would say. "'I'm not afraid, you know,' she said, which seemed quite presumptuous enough. "'You're not afraid of suffering?' "'Yes, I'm afraid of suffering, but I'm not afraid of ghosts. And I think people suffer too easily,' she added. "'I don't believe you do,' said Ralph, looking at her with his hands in his pockets. "'I don't think that's a fault,' she answered. "'It's not absolutely necessary to suffer. "'We were not made for that.' "'You were not, certainly.' "'I'm not speaking of myself.' And she wandered off a little. "'No, it isn't a fault,' said her cousin. "'It's a merit to be strong.' "'Only, if you don't suffer, they call you hard,' Isabel remarked. They passed out of the smaller drawing-room, into which they had returned from the gallery, and paused in the hall, at the foot of the staircase. Here Ralph presented his companion with her bedroom candle, which he had taken from a niche. "'Never mind what they call you. When you do suffer, they call you an idiot. The great point's to be as happy as possible.' She looked at him a little. She had taken her candle and placed her foot on the oaken stair. "'Well,' she said, "'that's what I came to Europe for, to be happy as possible. "'Good night. "'Good night. "'I wish you all success, and shall be very glad to contribute to it.' She turned away, and he watched her as she slowly ascended. Then, with his hands always in his pockets, he went back to the empty drawing-room. End of chapter 5 Recording by Don Murphy in El Segundo, California.